I want to remind you that where we've been in Luke's Gospel, really the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel set out to answer the question, who is Jesus? We get to chapter 9, there's the great confession by Peter, there's the transfiguration of Jesus upon the mount, and it becomes very clear who he is. And then there's that great hinge verse in Luke 9.51. It says, in the time drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And so the first nine chapters, who is Jesus, all occurring mostly in the northern region in Galilee, the peaceful rural region. We begin chapter 9 through chapter 19, and he's journeying on his journey down to Jerusalem. These are called the travel narratives. In fact, you even see in verse 1 of Luke 19, it says he entered Jericho. So Jericho, about 16 miles from Jerusalem, and he is drawing closer and closer. And these chapters, these travel narratives, is not really fleshing out who is Jesus, but we've already done that. Now that we know who Jesus is, what does it look like to follow him? So really, Luke chapter 9 through 19 answers the question, what is a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we will see that, once again, that theme taught to us here in a very familiar story here in Luke 19. Before we uh, get to that story, I would like to just take a point of personal privilege, if I can, and I want to encourage you men in the church to really think and pray about this men's retreat that we have coming up in a couple weekends from now. Um, I've, uh, the, we are bringing in a guest speaker named Brian Hedges. Brian Hedges has written a wonderful little book on how to kill the sin in your life. This book, as soon as I read this book, I thought we need to get this man near our church to teach us how to do war against the sin in our hearts. It's an impactful book in my life, and I know Brian is going to be a very helpful speaker for us. And so we want to encourage you to go. It's a Friday night. Stay the night if you like. Saturday morning we'll be out in the afternoon, and you could sign up today. I would appreciate it if you would sign up and come with us. You sign up at the welcome desk, and I trust you will be richly, richly blessed. And so here we are, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We would ask you in your kindness to us even now that you would work in our hearts, draw us close to you, reveal yourself to us in it. I believe, 
lying before us is a great challenge to many of us. As we see how the Lord, when He saves, He transforms lives. We want to live lives lives transformed by the grace of Jesus. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I very much love the story of former Percival resident Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. In her article published in Christianity Today entitled, My Trainwreck Conversion, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians, then somehow became one. She gives powerful testimony to the truth of Leviticus, uh, Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. In fact, I would very much encourage you to read her autobiography, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, a very powerful story. But let me share with you from her article. She writes, as a professor of English and women's studies on track to becoming a tenured radical, I was fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. After my tenured book was published, I used my post to advance the allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy and meaningful. When she would encounter Christians, she would not be so happy. She would write, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choke, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and my wrath. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That is what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. Somewhat of an ironic twist in her life, or I'd probably say by God's providence. Her research led her to begin to study the religious right and, quote, their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track the Bible. I read the Bible the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year, multiple translations, and it began to have its impact in her life. She writes, at a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine, saying, the Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and the risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? I continued reading the Bible all the way, fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I prayed long into the unfolding day. When I looked into the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of Scripture, I wondered, who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Truly, 
a work of sovereign grace. An unlikely convert, indeed. I would like to introduce you to another one this morning from Luke's Gospel. A man named Zacchaeus, as you see in verse 1. He entered, Jesus, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named, there was a, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, if you've grown up in the church at all, there's a song going on in your heart right now, right? Okay? We are not going to sing it. Okay? See, the song is well enough, I think, but there's a problem with the song, and the song makes Zacchaeus to be a sympathetic figure. After all, he's just a wee little man, right? So I do want to remind you this morning that Rome was a brutal conquering empire. They would conquer nation after nation for no other reason than they simply wanted to expand their military might. And so they conquered, of course, Israel. And in order to conquer these lands and to occupy them, you need an army. And, and therefore, if you need an army, you need someone to pay for that army. And how do you get them to pay? Well, you get the people that you are occupying to actually pay for the occupying force through taxes. But if you have taxes, you need tax collectors. Now, tax collectors in this day were Jewish men who would extort their neighbors to pay for the very army that had conquered them and was occupying them in order so that they themselves could become rich. The only really modern historical equivalent might be Jewish individuals who are Nazi sympathizers, turning on their own people so that Nazis could decimate them. See, Zacchaeus was not quirky. He was not cute. He was a terrible, terrible man. He was the worst of society. He had betrayed God, betrayed his people, and he was oppressing his neighbors simply out of a desire of filthy lucre. He wanted to be rich, and he would let no one or nothing stop him. Now, remember in our study of Leviticus, over and over, we, ha- we saw God says, take care of the poor. In my land, the poor are cared for. So he said, you bring this offering, but if you're poor, you don't have to bring it. You can't afford it, you can bring this. He said, reap the fields in such a way that you leave some for the poor. And he said, love the poor as yourself. And you, you free the poor if they, they have to sell themselves into servanthood to you. And you give them back their land, God says, they're taken care of. Well, instead of taking care of the poor, Zacchaeus is taking money from the poor in order that he can become rich. And evidently it's working for the end of verse 2 simply says, he was rich. In fact, Jericho, where he lives was one of the three tax-collecting centers in Israel. Notice verse 2 says Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. That is, he, was, he had authority over a, a legion of tax collectors underneath him in a very lucrative place for collecting taxes. He was filthy rich, with every sense of the word, on the backs of the poor in order to support the occupying military force. You should not like him. He is not a good man. No one else liked him. In fact, tax collectors were not able to attend temple. They could not bring a sacrifice. They could not go to the synagogue, the Old Testament church. In fact, tax collectors were not even allowed to tithe. You know you're bad when the church doesn't want your money, right? Right? None of you are that bad. (laughs) Zacchaeus was prohibited from having any religious interaction with his people. He was hated. Even as you see in verse 3, 
And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. And so the story tells us Jesus was coming through town. People are lining the streets, much like they would in a parade. And thousands of people there wanting to see Jesus. Right? And you could imagine what this might be like. Let your mind think for a moment. This thronging crowd before the beautiful and lush city streets of ancient Jericho lined with palm trees, flowing springs. And just like this rest, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. The problem was he was short. Now, if you've ever been to a parade, if you're short, what happens? The tall people get out of the way, and so you go up in front, right? It's no skin off their nose. They can still see everything because you're beneath them. We let the short people go in front, but not Zacchaeus. Right? They would not let him go and see who Jesus was because they hated him. In fact, they would, in verse 7, as we'll see later, they will grumble that Jesus has, Jesus said, you come down, Zacchaeus. They'll be enraged that Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. And they had every reason to grumble. Zacchaeus was a thief. He was a traitor. He was as lost as one can be. And Jesus found him. And Jesus saved him. My friends, that's what Jesus does. Jesus seeks the lost. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save the lost. And so I want to consider in this wonderful little story, what is it like to be found by Jesus? What is it like to be saved by Him? You'll first note that being found by Jesus requires humility. Requires humility. Verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was a small stature, right? So the Lord he wanted to see. Why? What? We're not, we're not told why he wanted to see Jesus. We, we can, we could wonder, maybe he knew Levi, the tax collector, who was now one of Jesus' twelve apostles, whom we call Matthew. Maybe, maybe he knew Levi. Maybe he wanted to, how did Levi get to know this religious man? Maybe he like, so many other people had achieved power and achieved wealth and achieved everything that he wanted and found it empty and unfulfilling. We're not sure. But for whatever the reason, he wants to see Jesus. And I think in doing so, he's a wonderful reminder to us that some people, people that we would never expect, are secretly interested in Jesus. I mean, who would have thought if Zacchaeus, of all people, had any interest in this famous religious figure, right? Interested in spiritual realities. And I, I would suggest, my friend, there are probably some people in your life, if you talk to them about Jesus, they would be interested. There are some people in your life, if you invited to church, would be happy to come. Right? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. In fact, he wanted to see Jesus badly enough that he humbled himself to do it. He did so in two ways, as we see in verse 4. So he ran on ahead. Right? Men don't run. That would be undignified. Right? Men don't run today. Right? Let alone back then. Unless there's a dog involved or something. They're not often running. And so here's this rich man sprinting. Think about a business suit running down the road. And to make matters worse, if men don't run, they certainly don't climb to trees, which is exactly what he did, as you know, in verse 4. And climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he's about to pass that way. Can you imagine what that would be like? I don't know, in kind of modern terms. New York City, people lining the streets to see some celebrity, and you look up in a roadside tree, and there's Donald Trump up in a suit. Right? 
Could you imagine? You know, there's Michael Bloomberg scurrying up a tree so he might be able to see a celebrity. You think that might make the evening news? Might be on front page of the paper? That would make every news in every country in the world. Why? It's undignified. Right? Men don't climb trees. We would snicker at that. Right? This is what children do. And then we grow up. And by the way, our culture is informal. Their culture is all based upon honor and social status. And I want you to understand that Zacchaeus paid a great price to see Jesus. He would lose his dignity in order to see Jesus. He would humble himself to see Jesus. And that is the way it was. That is the way it is. And that is the way it always will be. If you are to come to Jesus, you must humble yourself. You must become undignified. If you case you don't know this, it is undignified in our land today to believe in Jesus. It is foolish. I very much appreciate the writings of C.S. Lewis. Perhaps you've read his fables, the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you if you have, you'd be surprised at the end that Susan, one of the four siblings, had such interaction with the Lord, did not go to heaven, at least uh, according to the stories, at least at that time. And she would not go, because, and she said to her siblings, the other three, fancy you still play those stories in your head that we played as children. Right? In other words, come on guys, time to grow up. We don't believe in these things anymore. We don't believe in the supernatural anymore. And that is what we tell our children, is it not? There comes a point in our children's life that we as a culture tell our children, you are here by accident. That you are simply the random outcome of time and chance. We all crawled out of a swamp one day. We're all simply advanced monkeys. And if you believe in good and evil, if you believe in angels and demons, if you believe in a God and a devil, you are a child and it is time to grow up. Right? In our land, the smart people, the dignified people reject the supernatural. I'll tell you, if you want to be found by Jesus, you will be humiliated. You, in fact, you need, if I could put it this way, you, you know what? You need to believe that there is an evil prince in this world, and we're all under his spell. And one day, the hero broke in from another world and redeemed us from this curse through his sacrificial love, died, rose from as a victor from the grave, and now rules in a spiritual land called heaven. And one day he will return in victory with an army of angels and his side. That's what you need to believe. But if you believe it, you've climbed a tree. You're silly. You're unrespectable. You're you're humbled. You think Rosaria Butterfield would have to pay that cost? She says, Jesus triumphed and I was a broken mess. Conversion was My train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved. I counted the cost and I did not like the math. Tenured professor at a major uh, research university in America, a leftist activist with a respect of all her peers. In order to give her life to Jesus, she would have to become undignified. She would have to climb a tree. You have to pay that cost. And not everyone is willing to do so. Consider a contrary example, the right honorable Lord Kenneth Clark a very famous BBC producer in the 20th century. He writes, when, I was, when he was living in France, he went to church and he heard Scripture read. And when he heard Scripture read, he had this religious experience where he immediately knew God was real. 
But then he would write, but as wonderful as that experience was, it caused an awkward problem. If I was to follow through on this, my family would think I had gone mad. So gradually the effect wore off, and I made no effort to maintain it. In other words, he didn't want his family to ridicule. He didn't want people, his peers, his family thinking, what are you talking about? Jesus, are you kidding me? Heaven, hell, God, devil, what are you? If you lost your mind, he didn't want to bear that humiliation. If you want to be found by Jesus, you need to climb a tree. And in particular, those of you who are in public school, those of you one day who will study at a public university, please understand, in order to maintain an allegiance to Jesus Christ, you will be humiliated. That's the way it was, it's the way it is, it's the way it always will be, but I will remind you of the words of Christ in Luke chapter 9 and verse 2, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in glory. We must be humbled. The second truth we discover is that being found by Jesus requires bringing Him into your life. Consider verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus clearly wanted to see Jesus, but evidently Jesus wanted to see him as well. And so he stops at the foot of that sycamore tree. Zacchaeus there hanging from a branch above. I can imagine him tensing as Jesus stops and lifts his eyes on this little man perched out on a limb. Fear in his heart, sweat upon his brow as this religious man begins to address him, undoubtedly thinking, here comes the rebuke, heard it all before. Here comes the ridicule by this religious man. And instead, to Zacchaeus' surprise and that of everyone there, he begins, in fact, by addressing him by name, Zacchaeus. How did he know? Well, maybe Zacchaeus was so notorious, everyone knew. Maybe. I will tell you, I'm reminded that these same all-knowing eyes once saw a man named Nathaniel under a fig tree, and he called him. I wonder if those eyes now see Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree, and he calls him to himself. He is, after all, seeking the lost. He would say elsewhere, my sheep hear my voice, and I call them by name called Zacchaeus. That's what Jesus does. He calls people by name. I remember when I was 17 years old and walked into a church building for the first time in a long, long time, and within five minutes I heard the Lord call Stephen. I mean, I didn't hear my ears, but I felt it in my heart. I knew he was real. I knew he was calling me to himself. He called me by name. There are billions and billions of people on this earth, and Jesus knows all of their names. He knows your name and everyone's name, and perhaps by his abounding grace, he might even be calling you now by name. Why won't you come to me? Why won't you bow your knee to me? Why won't you bring me into your life? Which is exactly what Jesus uh, demanded of Zacchaeus. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. Please understand, in this culture, hospitality meant something far different than it does for us. It was, it was hugely important to, to break bread with someone, to bring someone in your home, meant to befriend them, and meant to welcome them into your life. This is why the crowds are going to freak out, right? He's going to Zacchaeus' house. He's gone to be Zacchaeus' friend. He says, I'm, go- I'm going to your house. 
I must come to your house. It reminds me of the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea when he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I'm knocking and if you open the door, he says, I will come in and what? And I will eat with you. Why eat with you? Why does he add that? Because in this culture, eating, breaking bread together meant to invite them into your lives. It meant to, to befriend them, to, to share love with, with one another. And when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming home with you, he's, he's not saying to him or he has never said to you or anyone, you simply just have to believe a set of facts about me. So no, I need to be in your life. You just don't come and, and, and think about me on Sundays. It's you and I all the time. Jesus says, I'm moving in. I'm coming home. As God invites us into a relationship with Him, even a, a friendship with Jesus, I wonder, does He have access to all your life? Or are there parts of your life where Jesus is not allowed? Where He doesn't have authority? In fact, I love the fact that there in verse 5, it's not so much a request, is it? He's not saying, you know, Zacchaeus, I'd really like to come over. Is that okay with you? He says, no, I must come. It's like, ready or not, I'm coming. When you get home, I'm going to be there if we're not going together, because that's his mission. You see, Zacchaeus is not simply seeking Jesus, but Jesus is seeking him. He has come to save. He calls him by name. I'm coming for you. It reminds me of the song we sometimes sing, Lord, tis not that I to choose you, that I know can never be. For this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. This is a powerful word of the Lord. I'm coming to you. Jesus says you're lost. You're not going to find your way home on your own. I need to call you. I need to come into your life. And you see, being found by Jesus requires bringing him into your life. It requires being humbled. And it results, thirdly, being found by Jesus results in joy. And we see this very clearly in Zacchaeus' life. You notice how he responds in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So he's called by Jesus and he, little man practically falls out of the tree with joy, right? He, he, like, there's thousands of people around and he of all the people is singled out by this religious teacher. And without hesitation, you know, sending twigs and leaves flying, down he scurries, showing everyone and perhaps even showing himself what it is it that he truly longed for. Filled with joy, Luke tells us. Of course, the crowds did not share his joys, you see in verse 7. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They said he's gone to befriend a sinner. They accused, which of course is exactly the point. This is why Jesus has come. Salvation is for sinners. The only ones that need to be saved are sinners. The only ones that need to be found are those who are lost. This is what Jesus has come to save sinners, even sinners like Zacchaeus. And I tell you, if he could save a man like Zacchaeus, then he is willing to save anyone. Anyone. I don't care what you've done, who you are, He is willing to save you. And if you will, uh, if He will come into your life, if you will bow your knee to King Jesus and receive Him as your Savior, He will come into your life and change your heart and fill you with joy. I don't know if you want purpose in your life. You want the joy which God offers and come to Christ. Maybe some of you have been gazing at Jesus from a distance for some time. I tell you this morning, it's time to get out of the tree. It's time to say, okay, Jesus, come home with me. I'm yours, and you are mine. I surrender all to you. That's what Zacchaeus did. 
I like how one pastor puts it to the crowd's amazement, off strode Jesus as the half-pint kingpin of the Jericho tax machine hurried alongside on his stubby legs. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. As wonderful as it is, this is where it gets good. But you see, being found by Jesus, fourth, results in transformation. Look what happened to him, according to verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full. So evidently, Zacchaeus is in agreement with the grumbling masses. He is a sinner. He agrees. In fact, later that evening, it seems to me, he stands before those around that and, and confesses as much. He confesses his sin of omission, right? The things he has not done that he should have, he has not given to the poor. And he confesses his sin of commission, the things he has done and he shouldn't. He's defrauded others. So he makes his confession of sin, public confession of sin, and then beyond that confession, he vows to make restitution. Uh, in fact, amazing restitution, as this man immediately begins to divest himself of the wealth that it is, it is taking years to accumulate. I mean, could you imagine? Okay, first thing I want to do is I want to give away half my estate. Half of my wealth, I'm giving it away. And then, beyond that, I'm going to pay back anyone I cheated, and not just what I took. He says, I want to... I want to pay him back four times. Right? Could you imagine that? Zacchaeus says, okay, if I cheated you, come on, let's talk about it. Because I want to give you fourfold. Uh, you imagine what's going on in, Zac- in, in Jericho at this time? After this becomes public knowledge, right? Can you imagine, honey, remember Zacchaeus? He took all our retirement count. Right? Well, he met Jesus. And he wants to give us four times as much. In fact, I, I like how one put it. He's, he says, it's, he's like this friend of yours who borrows your Hyundai forever. And, and you're like, they never brought my Hyundai back. You say, I lent them my car and they stole it. And then one day you get a text, hey, I met Jesus. I feel terrible about stealing your Hyundai. So I parked a BMW in your driveway, right? <laughs> Please forgive me. Right? It's extraordinary. Half of what I own, it's going to the poor. You think about the poor in Jericho, you think that might have impacted their life? Those who are hungry, those who are begging on the streets. Zacchaeus says, listen, I got all this wealth and we're going to start feeding everyone in Jericho. His, this man's life has been changed. He who lived for money, he who gave up everything for money, he who betrayed and stole for money. says, I don't care about money anymore. I have a new treasure and his name is Jesus. He says, he's not saying, you notice, it's like, okay, well, I understand i got to do some things. I guess, I don't know, how much should I give to the poor? Right, okay, uh, I guess I should probably repay the people I defrauded. No, he's saying, who wants my money? Come and get it. I I have God. In fact, I love this little phrase there in the beginning of verse 8 when he begins to talk to the Lord. He says, behold, Lord. Maybe if you have the NIV, he says, look, Lord. And he's almost as if he's a child. Right? Look, Daddy. Look, look what I've done, right? Your kids come and they, they bring you a picture. Or say, look, Daddy, look in this cartwheel. Or look what I drove you. Or look what I've done for you. And, and here's Zacchaeus. His heart has been transformed. He comes to Jesus and says, look, Lord. I want to show you what I'm about to do because you have changed my life. You see, being found by Jesus will transform you. Jesus has not come to make religious people. 
He has not come to make churchgoers. He has not come to inform you. He has not come to inspire you. He has come to transform you. To change who you are. C.S. Lewis would write, Jesus didn't come to make you nice. He came to make you new. He would write, niceness is an excellent thing. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved them. For moral improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God, he writes, became man not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. That's what it's like to find Jesus. Being found by Jesus is not a matter of moral improvement. It is life revolution. It is total transformation. And we see it in Zacchaeus' life. In fact, I think the question is why? I mean, what, what happened that he was so radically changed? Well, Jesus will tell us in a moment. But, but I, I want you to recognize that even in calling Zacchaeus out of that tree, Jesus is testifying to his costly love for this man. Because it's not popular in front of thousands of adoring fans and followers and disciples to say, to say to Zacchaeus, above all of them, right? He could have picked anyone out. Above all of them, he says to Zacchaeus, I want to be your friend. Right? It's not popular to be Zacchaeus. If you're Zacchaeus' friend, you keep that quiet. And Jesus very publicly says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus, I, wanna, I want to be in your life. I want everyone to know I love Zacchaeus. And the crowd's reaction is, is, is disdain, is irritation. Jesus loves Zacchaeus at a cost of his own reputation. There, 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 there's, there's no, no merit, by the way, that Zacchaeus is earning his love. It's simply grace. Jesus gives him grace. He says, I want to be your friend. I, I love you. I want to spend time with you. And you notice it is with grace comes first. And after grace comes the, the transformation. I think the order is so important. Please understand that it is always grace that leads to change, not change leading to grace. Zacchaeus does not say, I'll stop cheating people. And then Jesus says, okay, since you're going to do that, I'll come into your life now. No, Jesus does not say, Zacchaeus, if you clean up your life, I'm coming home with you. No, he says, I'm coming home with you. I love you. I love you first. And as a result, Zacchaeus is changed. You see, in, in, in spite of your sin, Jesus says, I want to be with you. And, and that love, that costly love changes us. The love of Jesus is not the result of change. It brings about the change. And I want you to understand how different this is with every religion in this world. Every religion says, pray, give, bow, you know, take pilgrimage, right? Do penance, reincarnate, whatever it is. Why? We all, every religion teaches, do these things, and their things are different, but they all say, do these things so you, you can please God, do these things so God can accept you, and Christianity stands alone in the opposite and says, no, you meet Jesus, you receive Jesus' love, and you become new. He changes you, right? And out of that newness, out of that new identity, you begin to change. So you become transformed, you repent, you, you obey, not so that Jesus will love you, but because he already does. 
Not so that he'll accept you, but because he's already called you. He's already said, you're my friend. He already said, I want you to be my son. Obedience to Jesus, repentance in Christianity, therefore, is not what we have to do. Obedience is not, obedience to law is not what we have to do. It's what we get to do. It's what we want to do because we want to honor the one who has loved us. You see, the transformation is the evidence that we've been impacted by Jesus. It's the proof of salvation. Zacchaeus is not buying his way into the kingdom. He's not asking, how much is this going to cost me to get in? He's already in, according to verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. This man whose whole life was a traitor to God's people, the moment he surrenders to Jesus, he says, you are, you are truly a son of Abraham. Today salvation has come. Today you are saved. Religion can never say that. Religion can never say you are saved. Religion can never say salvation has come because you're never done. There's always more to do. Salvation in all religions is a process. There's never a time where you say, it's done, I'm saved now. Right? Christianity stands alone where Jesus says, it is this day that salvation has come upon you. See, salvation, therefore, is not about being good enough. I think so many times we think, okay, I need to be good enough in order for God to accept me. Let Zacchaeus destroy that notion. You'll never be good enough. You have to surrender your life to him who is good enough. And when you do that, transform, that will lead to transformation in your life. My question for you then is, has he transformed you? Has he changed you? Not as he inspired you, not as he informed you, not do you believe a set of fact, but as he revolutionized your life. There, there's, a, there's a type of Christianity out there that, that says, listen, well, Jesus will forgive you, you do whatever you want. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you used to do whatever you want. Then you meet Jesus. And you realize how much he loves you. And now you want to follow him. You want to obey him. There's joy in your heart to do so. Let me tell you with great kindness in my heart that people who say they're Christian and they live like everyone else are lying. And, and most likely they're lying to themselves. First John 1 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and while we walk in darkness, we lie. If he has not changed you, then you do not, he has not found you. He has not saved you. In fact, I, I think Satan doesn't mind that you're here this morning. I don't think he cares if you hear the Word of God. I don't think he cares if you're convicted by the Word of God. I don't think he cares if you're inspired by the Word of God, as long as you don't act on the Word of God. So you go to Bible study all you want. You could, you, you could be convicted over and over, and you can cry, and you could hug, and you could get sensations, and he could care less as long as you don't change. James 1, 2, be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Satan loves to deceive. And I think there are scores and hundreds and thousands of people who are deceived in thinking they belong to Christ, but there is no evidence of that. There is no change in their life. Zacchaeus is filled with joy, giving away, just giving away out of great joy. You, I don't know if you remember, it was a while since we've been in Luke, but 12 verses earlier, there was another rich man, remember him? The rich young ruler who was also convicted by the Word of God and he walks away sad. Right? I think there are so many people come, hear the Word of God, and they, they walk away sad because they will not repent. 
Jesus says there's either joyful transformation, seeing Zacchaeus' life, or sad conviction. Where is your life transformed? Where are you saying to the Lord, look, Lord, look what I'm doing because of what you have done for me. This, this Monday morning, I, I went into church as I do every Monday morning, and I got a, a, a phone call around 10 a.m. Um, I've been kind of sharing with you how God has been moving my family through this foster care process. And I got this call, and a uh, lady on the phone says, Hi, I'm with uh, DSS. We have a baby who needs a home. Would you like, would you like a baby? Um, we'd like to care for this baby. And so I said, let me think about it. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. Uh, and by one o'clock the lady was was driving away from our house and Allegra and I are sitting there and we're we're staring at a five-week old and this baby will be in our home uh, now for 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 maybe a year maybe longer as we love this child and try to minister to her mother as well and care for her and pray for her and we've been going through this process for about a year the training was exhaustive the Certification was even more um, exhaustive. And, you know, we're just going to share this with our families and people close to us. And, and what we've been hearing for the past years, uh, Stephen Leger, you guys have enough kids, right? You have seven kids. Why, why, why would you want another? And, and, and we've heard the warnings. You bring a child into your family, changes everything. You have a good kind of thing going on, and it's just going to disrupt everything. It's going to impact your family. Don't do it. It's foolish. Don't do it. And we, we wanted to hear that. We wanted to pray about that. And I'll tell you, we would pray about that. And, the, and what I keep hearing in my heart is true and unadulterated religion is this, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world and caring for widows and orphans. I keep hearing in my heart, God say to me, I am a father to the fatherless. I keep hearing my God say to me, if you, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. And so there's a baby. I'm up at Thursday morning and I'm, I mean, I thought diapers were done, to be honest. Um, and I'm Thursday morning at 5 a.m. I'm feeding a baby and I'm rocking a baby. I'm changing a baby's diaper. And I, you know what? I'm, I'm praying over this little girl and I'm saying, Look, Lord. Look, Lord. Because you love me, I want to love this child. Not to earn your love, but because I already have it. And I don't say this to boast. And I'm not saying this so that you all run out and be foster parents, so I think it would be awesome if some of you did. I'm saying, where has God impacted your life, even if, it, if you suffer for it, that you might say to Him, because of what you've done for me, I want to do this for you, not to win your approval, but because I already have it. Where are you saying, look, Lord, look at what I'm doing. Is there any area in your life you can identify? This is where, this is where I'm transformed. This is where I'm running. This is where I'm saying, God, I want to do this for you because of who you are to me. This is, by the way, why I'm so excited for this men's retreat where I get to spend 24 hours with my brothers just thinking, how can we fight the sin in our life? How can we get on top of these things? How can we move forward? How can we do whatever it is possible to become more like Jesus? Because I think so many of us, we're just kind of like, we're just lukewarm. 
We're just kind of going through the motions and there's no area of transformation and there's no area of, of revolution in our, in our life. And you know, when Jesus, Jesus comes and he writes this letter to the church of Laodicea and he says, I'm knocking on that door. He says, you open, I will come in, right? Earlier, just a verse earlier, he says, if you're lukewarm, you make me want to gag. I want to spit you out. And then he says, okay, but I'm here. I'm, I'm knocking. I want to come in. Let's change this. And then he says, if you overcome, you get the right to sit on my throne. And that ends Revelation 3. We go to Revelation 4. And, and John says, I looked up into heaven. I saw a door open. And someone called me up. And I went up into heaven. And I went through that door. And where was he? In the throne room. Right? Jesus said, you overcome, you sit on my throne. He calls John up to the throne room and he sees someone sitting on the throne and he's like this shining jasper and there's this, this emerald rainbow halo around him and there's pillars of fire and flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder and around that throne are 24 other thrones of men dressed in white with crowns on their head on their knees before the one who's sitting on the throne and there are four living creatures and six wings, one with the face of an ox and a lion and, a, and an eagle and and a man, and they're just crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then John says, and I look, and there were a hundred million angels roaring with one voice, worthy is the Lamb, they cry in heaven. And Jesus says, would you like to sit on this throne with me? And I think so many of us are like, no, I'd just rather watch TV. Right? No, I don't think so. You know, I just got to just piddle around. And Jesus says, you make me want to gag. When I offer you this, and you walk away, where are you transformed, my brothers and sisters? In a moment, we're going to pass these elements as we take the Lord's Supper. I wonder, we're going to eat together as Scripture instructs us and drink together. Maybe while you're holding it or you're waiting to hold it, you're, you're praying to God silently. God, show me where I'm not committed to you. Show me where I need to repent. Show me if I defrauded someone and I need to pay them back. Show me if I'm cheating on my employer. I'm not doing the work I'm supposed to do. Show me how, if I'm neglecting my family and not loving my spouse or raising my children, pastoring them as I'm called to do. Show me if I'm greedy, if I'm obsessed with money. That you, you, you would pray, do whatever it takes to, to put me on fire for you. And maybe later you can find someone and say, listen, I'm, I'm lukewarm in this area. I, I don't see the transformation in my life. I'm not passionate like I should be. Will you, will you help me? And you guys can begin to engage. And we do all of this, friends. I, we do all of this with the hope of verse 10. The hope that the Lord's Supper testifies to. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to save sinners, right? He's been seeking them throughout Luke's gospel. Eventually, he'll save them by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. He'll save the most religious people. He'll save the most despicable people like Zacchaeus, who we just write off, who's beyond salvation. In fact, Scripture is silent about what happens to Zacchaeus, but church history is not. In the second century, the bishop of Alexandria, a man named Clement, was preaching a sermon, which we still have. And in his sermon, he mentions Zacchaeus, talks how he continued to follow the Lord, and eventually became the pastor in Caesarea. This wee little man one day climbed out of a tree, 
and he left the lucrative money-changing tables in Jericho to preach God's Word and to shepherd God's people because Jesus loved him. Because Jesus bore the disdain of the crowd to do so. I, I will tell everyone I love you, and I don't care what they think about me. But you understand that the crowds did more than grumble, don't you? In fact, to show you his love, Christian, he didn't simply bear the crowd's disdain. He took on the crowd's rage. To love us, it would cost him his life. Zacchaeus would come down from that tree. Jesus, as it were, would go up. And there he'd be nailed to it. He did this for you. He died for you. He rose from again for you. He says, even if you're against me, even if you rebel against me, I love you. I'd die for you if you would come to me. I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word this morning, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't some of you, even now, as we pray together, preparing our hearts for this Lord's Supper, call out to Jesus, save me, Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this wonderful and powerful example. And it brings conviction on us, I think, good conviction. Help us, Father, not to play a game when it comes to our relationship with you. Help us to give you everything. Help us to repent. Help us to be so enthralled with the grace of Jesus, the costly grace which we will remember through this meal, that Father, you will change us. That we will long to follow Jesus, not to earn his approval, but because we have it. And even now, Father, we ask that you would help us search our hearts as we silently pray for a moment and prepare ourselves for this meal.